Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to March's Movies Podcast. Coming up, we look at the cinema and desk news, and we also discuss this year's Oscar ceremony. And joining me on the podcast this month is a new voice to the AV Forums Movies Podcast, Alan Parson. Hi, Alan. How are you? Very well, sir. Very well. And you are another Scotsman. We seem to be taking over the world at the moment. Indeed. There's a busload of us just waiting for the order to come down from the uh, north of the border. And um, we're gradually infiltrating the country, I think. (laughs) And as always, I'm also joined by Chris McAnini. Hi, Chris. Hello. Hello, everyone. And Simon Crust. Hello, everyone. How is everyone? And uh, everybody to talk quietly tonight because Simon's head's a little bit sore. We won't see what he was doing last night. So, as always, we're going to move on straight away to the Blu-ray disc uh, news. And first up is Chris. And Chris, a big Pixar release coming in Monsters, Inc. Tell us about it. Monsters, Inc. Oh, glorious, glorious movie. Um, This is the one where they discovered they could actually, you know, um, CG animate fair with great definition on it. And it's a... it's a great, great movie. It's coming out from Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment. Um, it's coming uh, May 19th. List price of $40.99. I mean, this is the American release, obviously. I, I'm not aware of a, of a UK release as yet, but I, obviously there will be one very soon, I would have thought. Um, it seems to carry all the things that were on the original um, standard disc, which was a, a great, well-stacked um, release. I want to think, marvellous, marvellous movie. Obviously, when it first came out, I was a big fan of it. Um, so I love Pixar movies anyway, and I thought it was a very clever idea. You know, monsters stealing screams to fuel their own little world in their alternate reality. Marvelous, marvelous stuff. Great characters, uh, fantastic voice cast, and a really you know clever, clever story. Very moving as well as Pixar stories tend to be. You've got the cutie stuff, you've got the funny stuff, you've got the intelligent jokes there for the adults, you've got the you know the little things for the kids, and you've got a bit of a moving sentiment there as well which always gets you doesn't it and you know i can't wait for this at the moment i, I mean i've been seeing this film a hell of a lot lately i have a almost well she's just turned two now two-year-old daughter who had a phase of being addicted to monsters inc where it would be on if she could remain awake for 24 hours it would be on 24 hours non-stop and so i can virtually quote this movie off by heart but i'm not sick of it there's a test of a great film the fact that you can sit through it again and again and again and again and, you know, you don't get tired of it. So that's, that's a great one I'm looking forward to. Uh, let's have a look and see what its formats are going to be for audio. It's got English DTS HD, Master Losters 5.1. Should be great. The DTS on the original SD um, standard disc was very, very good, if I remember rightly. It's in 2.35 to 1. It's 1080p. It's going to be a great one. It's got the original um, short films on Mike's Car and For the Birds. It's got the outtakes and all sorts of stuff. Um, so it's going to be a great... It's got BD Live. I've just noticed it's got BD Live as well. So you have some more new stuff added. Filmmakers Roundtable. Go Seek Building Monstropolis in Tokyo. And the original story treatment. So you've actually got a, a bit more as well. Added value. I can't see how anyone could pass this one up. So that's coming. 
May 19th. And of course, that'll be a, a complete digital transfer as well, so it should look absolutely sublime, Chris. It should look absolutely awesome, yeah. I mean, even the standard disc now, watching it now upscaled, it still looks pretty good to me. So it's going to go leaps and bounds above that, obviously. Yeah, it's it's a great one. I cannot wait for it. Obviously, the one I, I want most of all would be um, The Incredibles. That's still my all-time favourite uh, Pixar movie. And seeing what the latest ones have come out looking like, like Ratatouille, Cars, Wall-E, you know, you can't go wrong, can you? Their transfers are going to be just phenomenal. And I guess we could pick up on what Jack Black said uh... Uh, recently where he said the, the only reason he works for, for DreamWorks is he takes the money he makes there and puts it on uh, Pixar to win Oscars and, and they do win Oscars for their work. Well, their work is exceptionally good. That's why it's technically um, highly advanced. They push the boundaries. Their stories tend to be quite revolutionary, really. I mean, you've got the, the Disney ethic of wholesome family values. People discover the worth of other people and they learn to get on. They overcome their own bias, troubles, dilemmas. It's the same old sort of thing, but with the Pixar twist, they're quirky, weird characters. They're oddballs. If you look at the latest one they're making right now, which I've forgotten the title of, it's a, a guy in his 80s who attaches balloons to his house and travels the world with his little grandson, if I remember rightly. So, I mean, it's, you're taking mismatched, bizarre characters, throwing them together, and on the face of it, this shouldn't really work. Well, he shouldn't have worked, should it? You know, you've got a, a very lonely robot cleaning up after what amounts to a, you know, an apocalypse for the Earth. Humankind has become fat bloaters drifting off into space. You know, it, your main characters don't even speak. It shouldn't really have worked, and yet it's absolutely sublime. A wonderful, wonderful movie. Pixar have magic within them, without a doubt. I know I'm, I'm really selling them good style, but I don't need to because there's there's such you know talented people and their stories are so so clever. They just go from strength to strength as far as I can see. And I, I, I always get a bit of pleasure, I, I don't know about you guys, but watching the extras on these discs from Pixar and, and seeing behind the scenes and seeing where these movies are put together and the offices and that kind of thing. And they are just big kids at the end of the day. And, and that comes across. It comes across that everybody's really having fun on these films. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. They're they're really having fun. They're enjoying themselves, and of course, you're going to get the best work out of someone who's you know enjoying what they do. They've got a passion for it. They they may be very very highly trained at what they do, but they've uh, they're still kids at heart, aren't they? So enough of uh, uh, the Pixar for us at the moment. That's coming out. What was the date for that, Chris? That's May nineteenth. We got a little well. That's the American Blu-ray. A little while to wait yet, but we're going to move over to uh, the new guy. And uh, Alan, you're going to tell us a little bit about Bond. So what have we got to look forward to? Uh, Bond films, there's a few of them on the way here uh, from the American uh, side of the, the, the water. We've got Goldfinger coming out on Blu-ray, Moonraker, The World Is Not Enough, and Quantum of Solace, the most recent one. Over and above that, we have... Uh, Never See Never Again, the non-official Cubby Broccoli uh, Bond. It's it's not a Cubby Broccoli Bond. It's made by uh, a a different producer. And coming back to the uh, Eon Productions Bonds, we've got The Man with the Golden Gun and License to Kill. Taking them in their order uh, that we just mentioned them, uh, Goldfinger is the one that's got everything. It's got the Aston Martin. It's got um, Shirley Eaton painted gold. It's... uh, it's a real uh, classic if you can apply that to a Bond film. 
the picture quality of the Blu-ray will hopefully be far better than some of the previous DVD releases because they were looking a bit ropey. Um, the last, I think they called the Ultimate Edition, that looked quite good, but uh, I can't wait to see this one on Blu-ray. It should be really, really nice uh, if they've done the same good job of the transfers as, as they did on the first six Bond films that were, that were released on, on Blu-ray, particularly Doctor No, was fantastic in quality, and I think they probably spent the most time and most money on that one. So we're hoping that they're going to do the same with Goldfinger. The street date for that's uh, March the 24th. Uh, list price of $34.95 in America. And uh, I mean, I think it's probably £17.99 or something like that by the time it gets over here. Uh, but who knows with the conversion rate? Uh, with the, with the pound, pound enjoying parity with shirt buttons and bottle tops, who knows? Um, moving on to look at Moonraker this is uh, I remember showing Moonraker in a town hall in Scotland to an audience and they thoroughly enjoyed it this was way back about 1979 1980 it's the, the one where Roger Moore as James Bond goes into outer space they were cashing in on the at the time, the Star Wars phenomenon, uh, Cubby Broccoli trying to make a bit of money off the back of that, and certainly they did. It's one of the ones they didn't make at Pinewood. They uh, took that to a French studio in the hope that they'd save some money, but at the end of the day, it ended up costing them a bit more. And um, it's, a, it's a Bond film with a smile on its face, and that's how I like my Bond films. Uh, a bit of humour, a bit of witty uh, uh, repartee, a few jokes, and Roger Moore sharing the jokes with, with the audience. Um, Street Day, again, March 24th for that, and the same old price, $34.95. Moving on, The World is Not Enough. Pierce Brosnan uh, as James Bond in this one. To me, I felt it was a bit of a dud, this one. It wasn't terribly exciting. The probably most exciting thing uh, was the um, speedboat chase on the Thames, um, leading to James Bond um, dangling off of the... the, um, the what is now the O2 centre um, in in uh, London, not a terribly exciting film. The body wasn't very convincing in uh, Robert Carlyle, but again, everybody's got their favourites. Um, it's just not one of my favourites that one. But March twenty fourth for that one, same price thirty four ninety five, and then uh, finally, well not finally, the the most recent one is Quantum of Solace. Um, Daniel Craig, the most recent Bond, the most recent grim Bond, uh, Bond without a smile on his face, a Bond without a joke, Bond that doesn't seem like Bond, more like, um, um, what's his name? Uh, Don't say it! Sorry. (laughs) Well, I had to mention it, you know. It's... No! <laughs> you know, he needs, he, needs a, he needs to have a bit of a laugh, does this Bond, you know, he's, he's just a bit too heavy. Uh, I think but, he will from this, from the next movie onwards, I think they'll, I ho- they'll start. I hope so, I hope we see a, a, a bit more of a return to the old Bond. We, we've seen the change that they had to do to jumpstart the uh, franchise again. Um, Okay, we've had that, guys. Let's get on with a bit of the successful formula that Cubby Broccoli developed uh, with Harry Saltzman way back in the old days. And I think if Cubby Broccoli had seen Quantum, he'd have been probably doing uh, handsprings in his graves. In his graves, rather. Uh, uh, probably wrong. <laughs> his graves. <laughs> yeah, he's everywhere. But... Um, it's you know having seen uh, the work that went on at Pinewood behind some of the, the films, um, I, I remember hearing uh, the story that as Cubby Broccoli would have to leave a set for some reason or other, he would say to them, "Just don't let anybody screw it up." Now, 
you know, I think we, we just need to uh, see what people have done now that they've been left to their own devices. But that's just my opinion. And I'm sure people will, uh, a lot of people will disagree with that. Great, great actioner and a lot of uh, very tightly cut sequences in this film. Um, I just like to see the action, that's all. I think at this point, I, I just should warn listeners that it's likely to be World War Three any minute now. Uh, I, can, I, can, I can tell that Chris is getting a little bit wound up, at Mr. Bond over there. So no, there, there's, there's some very valid points. I mean, if I've got to be honest about it, Consumer Solace is certainly a lacking Bond film when it comes to the whole Bond phenomenon. But I can see why it's been done that way. I can understand. I mean, you say about the sense of humour. I think Daniel Craig had a bit of humour in Casino Royale. It wasn't a great deal of it, but it was definitely there. He was enjoying himself. Uh, the Bond character himself was enjoying his new license to kill double O status. And then, of course, he meets a woman who challenges his entire, his, his sudden new outlook on uh, his professional life. He's about to give the whole thing up for her. We all know what happens. And now he's hell-bent on, well, he says he's not out for revenge in Quantum of Solace, but we all know what he's really after, don't we? It's a bit of payback. And, you know, he... You know, he, he does. He goes through the motions in Quantum of Solace. Uh, it's very horribly cut. The, the the action scenes, again, sort of in a line with the uh, the the Batman reboots, because Chris Nolan can't seem to shoot act, action scenes to save his life. As much as I love those films, I want to see the fighting as well. I want to see what's going on. I don't want snap cut editing. They worked in uh, Jason Bourne. They don't necessarily work in other movies, and. Quantum of Solace is one that certainly, you know, could have done with a bit more, a slower pace perhaps, and the camera pulling back slightly, and maybe longer, longer action sequences. They're very short if you look at it. The opening mm. car chase is over within what, ninety seconds? It's ridiculous. That, yeah. that should have been the big, you know, fabulous, you know, <laughs> ball-busting adrenal opening into the movie, and it's over before you, you know it. Yeah. Did uh, you not? So, Chris, right after the opening sequence where Bond's been getting chased, um, machine guns fired at him and all that kind of stuff, and he comes and he opens the boot and lets Mr. Green out. Yeah, it should have been just, riddled with bullet holes. Well, but were you not just dying for him to say something like, Her Majesty's Government thanks you for travelling with us and hopes that you'll fly again with us sometime? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I see your point. And in the, in the old days, that would have been the case, wouldn't it? But mm. I actually like what he says because Daniel Craig, and this is something I haven't discussed in, in any review so far, I love his sort of very understated line delivery in a lot of cases. And that is one major one because the way he just goes, it's time to get out. It, it's, there's, a, there's a pleasantry to what he says. There's a sort of half smile on his face. But you know you're not going to mess with this guy. So oh, when, yeah. he, when he underplays certain lines, and it may well be a, a Daniel Craig thing that he does anyway. I don't think he might be doing it particularly on purpose as Bond. But I just love the way it comes across. It's like he's very understated, very sort of quiet, very pleasant. But on the other hand, don't mess with me because I will break every bone in your body and I will hold your wrist and feel your pulse die away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who could forget that grim, grim sequence later on? But yeah. it's, you know, a lot of the, the complaints I do take on board, without a doubt. Um, but Daniel Craig still is the Bond for me. Although on a magic secret service, George Lazenby, that's still my favourite 
Oh yeah, likewise, likewise. God, you know, and when that comes out on Blu-ray, oh, I truly cannot wait for that. Cannot yeah, wait. Peter Peter Hunt was a much underrated director. And the funny thing is, if you look at that movie now, look how quickly cut those fight sequences are. Yeah. Because it, you know, it's Pete... almost like a forerunner of what they did with um, Jason Bourne and obviously the new Bond. Peter Hunt was the guy who invented action editing in that method, cutting frames out, speeding the action up, uh, lifting the sound levels up. And when you saw yeah. that film in the cinema, the fight scenes were terrific. Yeah, I've, I've actually seen it in the cinema a few times. Um, <laughs> and the fight, particularly when he uh, he's, he's right near the start, and uh, it's the, the big black guy who's waiting in the room. He's just met, uh, oh, God, what's her name now? Diana Rigg. And he goes to the room, and the, the, the bodyguard's waiting there, and the massive fight in that apartment. That is truly outstanding. It's so well done. Mm. I just love it, love it. It's a great brutal punishing sequence, and that was the, that was the most violent Bond film up until you know the latest batch. Yeah, if you go back to Thunderball, you can really see the first um, use of the real action editing editing at that point, and that was Peter Hunt that did that. The the the, the fight in the French chateau. In the uh, chateau, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same, you're right. same style, but. Uh, anyway, yeah, you know, it's, it sounds like we've got a few things in common there. Um, but Quantum of Solace, going back to that, I'd say not as bad move, not as bad a movie as a lot of the critics made out. It has its good points. I watched it, and I thought at the end of the day, it's not as bad as they say. Uh, it's just to me, it wasn't what I was expecting as a Bond film. But let's hope the next one will be better. And that disc it comes out March twenty fourth as well, is that right? March twenty fourth as well. This one's a bit different price, thirty nine ninety eight. It's a bit more expensive than the other ones, so uh, it'd be nice if they were all the same price. But c'est la vie. And it's got a, a DTS HD lossless master uh, audio five point one surround track on it, as I believe most of them have. But yeah. this this one at least was recorded for that format originally, whereas some of the older ones would have been just plain mono. Yeah, there would have been. And uh, obviously we've just had Bond season on Sky HD as well. Did anybody catch them uh, on there? No, I'm afraid not. Sadly, no, because I haven't got it. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately they showed uh, quite a few of them in the wrong aspect ratio, which oh, kind, of, uh, kind of spoil things a little bit, but there you go. You can't have everything, can you? Okay, well, let's change direction again slightly. And... Um, Alan, I guess for for our listeners, you need to explain your background a little bit because uh, I understand uh, you know quite a bit about The Princess Bride. Um, So maybe you can tell listeners why that's the case and what what you've done in your career, just so people know exactly where you're coming from with this. Okay, well, I was was what you might call a corporate film video director for probably about 10 years. Um, I was based in Shepperton Studios for a while, and I was in and out of Pinewood. So while I was in there making my little films on a 30 grand budget, there was people in there making feature films on millions and millions of dollars of budgets. And I would end up standing in the lunch queue next to um, Superman and James Bond and people like that. So there was a lot of interest going on um, uh, all around me. And... You know, for someone who'd been a, a film buff growing up uh, in a small town in Scotland, 500 miles away from where it was all happening, um, it uh, it was it was a great thrill to work uh, and be among this. But after a little while, it just became like everywhere else. It, a film studio became a factory to you, and so. But still, 
looking back on it now, because I'm, I'm not a full-time filmmaker anymore, although I do keep my hand in with the odd little film, um, it's nice to look back on some productions, and I have great memories of The Princess Bride, because it was made in Shepperton Studios when I was working there. Um, it's actually coming out on Blu-ray on March the 17th this year, um, list price $34.99 from, in America. At the moment, um, uh, the best thing you can get, the best version of it is the Region 1 DVD, um, which is anamorphic, and the other one wasn't, the uh, Region 2 one wasn't. Um, so I'm hoping they're going to do a, a really nice transfer of this, but I'm a bit suspicious. I mean, it says uh, the Codex 1080p MPEG-2. Um, you know, I'm pretending I used to see an AVC MPEG-4. Let's hope it kind of lives up to it. Aspect ratio is the original aspect ratio, which is 1.85 to 1. And they're doing an, uh, a DTS-HD lossless master audio 5.1 surround track with it. The film was, uh, as far as I can remember, it, it was shot, it was released with just a, a mono track. Uh, this was way back about 1987, by the way, it was released initially. Um, the cast includes Chris Saradin, Mandy Patinkin, who's a, who's a bloke, for those who don't know that, um, Billy Crystal, uh, Carrie Elwes, uh, Robin Wright, the director was Rob Rayner, and the, the real star of the show was the script by uh, William Goldman. Uh, basically, it's a classic fairy tale. Uh, there's swordplay giants, and by giants, I mean no, re no, no, no fake giants. The giant was a real guy called Andre the Giant. He was a, a wrestler. Um, he was about eight feet tall, and uh, I was—I remember being in the uh, the admin block in the studio when they were told he was—he was coming into the studio. One one person said, "He's eight feet tall. Where's he going to sit?" The studio <laughs> manager said, "Anywhere he likes." <laughs> And he was a big chap. He was a great big guy. Uh, he, not only was he tall, he was wide. His hands were massive, but he had a normal-sized heart. So he was always at a puff. If, you know, this not this little this little heart was pumping blood all around this massive body. And he's a very gentle man, a very nice, nice man. Um, and he he was um, it was the only place that, uh, that he felt that people didn't look at him in the film studio because um, they were so used to seeing unusual things and he said that was his favourite place in the country. Um, I was very sad when I heard he died, I think it was about 1994. But uh, nice, nice man. Um, also, I remember seeing Billy Crystal. Um, I didn't know he was Billy Crystal at the time. Uh, we were in the bar one lunchtime, and this really decrepit old man came in with this big staff, and he, he he was being helped by two people through the bar. And I thought, what on earth are they doing, forcing that poor old guy to come in here? And it was Billy Crystal in his Miracle Max makeup. It was so realistic. I also remember that they flooded H stage uh, to film the sequence with the the boat um, where, where the, the the giant and the the his friends are going across the sea in a boat, which was all in H stage, which was the stage that they used to film uh, The Cruel Sea years and years ago. I don't think they had flooded it in between times, so when they flooded it uh, for this film, um, all the water bubbled up through the cracks in the concrete around about the outside of the stage. So there was a bit of a panic and a hasty bit of grout in there to try and stop that. Um, it's it, it was uh, a fun film. I remember seeing the set on A stage, uh, the castle battlements where Mandy Patinkin and Carrie Elwes have a sword fight. Um, I remember seeing horses going in, and um, it was magic. Um, so it was really nice to find that the film had actually turned out well, and it's a nice story. 
It starts out with a, a kindly grandfather reading a story to his slightly jaundiced, cynical grandson um, uh, and taking him through a fairy tale. And the little boy thinks that a fairy tale is probably a bit too sissy for him to listen to, but he gets engrossed by it. And it's a little love story as well. It's just well made and a witty script, very witty script, very funny. And um, I, I would recommend it wholeheartedly to anyone who, who likes this kind of film or anyone in general and I'm sure you grow to love the film it's not a, not a terrible long film it's 98 minutes long uh, so it's uh, you, you, you're not going to get a number I'm sitting through this one but it's a nice wee film and um, it's coming out as I say March the 17th and it's one that I'll be uh, jumping on if, if I can get hold of a copy of it So Alan it's always great to hear behind the scenes stuff and uh, Princess Bride what was the date for that release again? The date for that is uh, March the 17th March the 17th for that. So that wraps up our disc news for this month. We're going to move swiftly on to cinema news next. Join the discussion at Europe's largest home cinema website. Log in to avforums.com. So we quickly move on to the cinema news. We do realise that we kind of went over the time there when speaking about the movies, but it was interesting. So uh, let's move quickly to the movies and one that jumps off the page straight away. Uh, lesbian vampire killers who's interested in this one and it's not what it sounds like I think it is what it sounds like isn't it I think there's meant to be a fair bit of nudity in this one um, Gavin and Stacey's uh, two main comedy hon shows James Corden and Matthew Horn star as two no hopers who encounter a village of vampire female vampires will the boys rise to the challenge of becoming lesbian vampire killers um, filmed probably very much in the uh, Shaun of the Dead sort of style but also harking back to possibly a lot of the sort of subgenre of lesbian vampire movies from the 60s and 70s. It's just, uh, it's pure titillation, pure teenage fanboy sort of excess. As a horror film, it's not going to be a horror film, is it? It's a comedy. It's just going to be a comedy. But apparently it's meant to be quite gory as well in places that I've heard. Um, it's, it's only a 15 certificate, so but I mean, you can get away with a fair bit these days for 15s, can't you? Uh, so I, th- I don't know. It's not something that really... I can imagine going to flicks to see. It's one of those things that on disc, I probably wouldn't even get me to watch it then, but it's one of those, if it came on, I'd, I'd stick with it and probably enjoy it quite a lot. But it's not one that um, I got me way for at all. I don't know about you guys. Well, I mean, kind of looking at, at the entire list here for the cinema news, and um, to be honest with you, there's absolutely nothing apart from Watchmen that jump out and say, come and see me. Um, I don't know about you other guys. Well, Watchmen, uh, you've got to go and see that. That is... Again, you know, Alan Moore's fantastic, complex, comprehensive, brain-bamboozling graphic novel. Um, a long time in, in movie gestation. A lot of directors have been seen off by this one. They, they couldn't quite get their heads around it. Uh, it's, it's a vast sort of uh, idea, vast sort of concept, an alternate reality. Um, back in 1985, I think it is, if I remember rightly, you have a bunch of sort of washed-up and sort of has-been super costume superheroes with a bit of horrible backstory between them all. And one of them gets this... This, and this is no you know major spoiler. This is the whole point of the movie, uh, or one of the points of the movie. It's got quite a few, to be honest. Um, one of them gets murdered, and uh, one of the guys, one of the Rossach, named after the, um, the psychological diagrams, which, you know, people's mental states can be guessed. He has a mask made out of Rossach diagrams, um, and he brings them all together to try and work out who done it, basically, who killed the comedian who was the the poor um, superhero who, who was offed. And 
But there's a hell of a lot more to it than that. And, of course, this is actually made by Zack Snyder, who did the fantastic, we all know how much I loved it, 300 movie adaptation. And, you know, so it's going to be very unique and stylish and pretty much quite a, quite a brutal movie. Looking at what we've got here, detail-wise, it says there's no certificate. Now, I'm or I'm still to be um, certified. I, I think it's a certificate 18. Could be wrong on that. At the time of recording this podcast, I've, I'm sure I've seen it in 18. If that's the case, wow. Because <laughs> it is a very dark, very mature, very adult sort of story. No one's particularly likable. Um, even I mean, even the good guys that are particularly heinous bunch when they're you know, given, given the chance. But that's going to be a great, great big movie. I hope it is anyway. Um, I know it will deviate from the, uh, the epic comic book, which Time Magazine lists as one of the top 100 books which I still find a little bit hard to believe. But, you know, uh, this is what they say. It, it just shows you the um, prestige with which this story is held. Alan Moore, of course, disowned it, but, you know, that's his prerogative. He doesn't like Hollywood, does he? Um, and that comes out uh, on the 3rd... The 6th, sorry, the 6th of, of March. So it's um, very soon from the time of recording this podcast, and I think that'll be a, a great movie. Certainly one I'd recommend. Anybody else interested in going to see that, Alan? To be honest, it doesn't really strike me as something that's it's my cup of tea. Um, uh, if, I, if I'm going to go to the cinema to see a film, I want to see something that I feel is going to entertain me. Um, looking at the list, I'd be hard-pressed to see anything that would make me want to jump in the car, um, go into Guildford and uh, sit through a cinema presentation and then get stuck in a traffic jam at 11 o'clock at night to get out of the place. Um it's, you know, maybe if these things were coming out on, on DVD or Blu-ray, I would take a look at them. But really, there's nothing special there that I feel would warrant the trip to a cinema. I have to agree. There's not a great deal um, in the lineup that we've got right here. I mean, let's have a quick rundown. Uh, surveillance. I don't even know what that is. Marley and Me. That's Owen Wilson and Jennifer Aniston. So as a young couple starting out in life with their boisterous and often out-of-control new dog, Marley. Now, I'm a major, major dog lover. I'm still grieving for the loss of my own dog, but um, there's nothing about that <laughs> to make me want to go and see it. <laughs> typical, typical, you know, light and airy, ridiculous comedy pap um, with a bit of relationship dilemmas thrown in as well. And, of course, the, the dog's going to bring them all together. I'm fairly certain of that. Um, a big comedy, well, Paul Blart, Mall Cop. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> well, well, actually, we we saw trailers of that when we were over for CES, and, we, and it we looked did. quite amusing. But you can just tell it's going to be one of these. Um, you've probably seen all the laughs in the trailer type of movie. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Uh, Duplicity, spy thriller starring Julia Roberts and Clive Owen, um, as two ex-government agents working for rival multinational corporations. But when their paths cross and they fall in love, their missions become compromised. Well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there, there. No. I so, think we're, sort of I think we're... Mr. and Mrs. Smith there by the sound yeah. of that one. But... I think I think we're in the lull between Christmas time and the next big bank holiday, Easter, um, when we'll be seeing some decent releases there that will warrant the trip to a cinema. You know, something that's spectacular, maybe a blockbuster. Um, but at the moment, the, the it's the post-Christmas lull. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, before we sign it. off on the on the cinema releases, um, there's one that I'd like to plug, which is 
It's not due out for a little while yet. It's due out on April the 10th, and it's a Swedish horror movie. A lot of people will probably already know about this one because um, it's already released on American Blu-ray, and I hope to be reviewing that as soon as it turns up, basically. It's called Let the Right One In. It's a vampire story. As I say, it's set in Sweden, set in the um, the early 80s, and it's about a bullied young boy who meets a strange young girl who befriends him and begins to look after him. And in, in turn, he begins to look after her. What is she? She's a vampire. But this is not like any vampire film you've ever seen before. Now, I'm saying this, I've not actually seen it, but I do know someone who has, and uh, it absolutely blew him away. Uh, he said it's very, very moving, exceptionally well made. Not your conventional horror story, but it's uh, it's got moments of, you know, the, the bloodshed is there, but it's uh, a very cerebral and very emotional sort of story. And it, it certainly has got quite a groundswell of interest in it. So that's coming on April the 10th at the cinema. Obviously, if you can, you know, if you've got access to a, an American Blu-ray machine, then obviously you could look at it on Blu-ray first. But, you know, that's one that if I couldn't get it on disc, I would be very interested in seeing it at the flicks myself. So, yeah, Chris, that sounds like uh, the type of movie that I'll pick up and have a look at. But looking at the list, I think we're all agreed that... Um, uh, March is not a movie-going month for the majority of us, uh, which is a shame, but Watchmen is out 6th of March, so if superheroes are your cup of tea, uh, adult themes, it looks like it's going to be an 18, then that's our pick of the month. So we're going to move on next and talk about the Oscars. Made by enthusiasts. For enthusiasts. Wow, a free movie, thanks. This is the AV Podcast. So let's move on to the last part of this month's podcast and we're going to look back at the Oscars, which in terms of our recording this has just happened at the weekend. So we're going to look at the various categories and uh, obviously the first one on the night was actress in a supporting role. And we had Amy Adams for Doubt, Penelope Cruz for Vicky Cristina Barcelona, uh, Viola Davis in Doubt and uh, Marisa Tomei in The Wrestler and some other... Um, uh, last who our uh, first name just throws me, but I can't pronounce it, so I apologise. Uh, just like the guy on the night who got it wrong as well. Uh, but Miss Henson was also there for uh, Benjamin Button. So, out of those, which ones did you hope were going to win? Um, and then we'll tell. We'll obviously talk about the, the actual winner. So, uh, Chris, out of that lot, how many of the films did you actually see, and, and did any of these performances uh, move you in any way? <laughs> I'm laughing because I've seen none of those movies. But (laughs) (laughs) going on reliable information from people I know who have seen these movies, it would have been uh, Marisa Tomai for The uh, the Wrestler or Penelope Cruz for Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Um, The other ones I've got absolutely no idea about at all. So, um, But I do like Penelope Cruz. Yeah, so I'm quite happy that she that she picked up the, yeah. the Oscar for that one. Yeah, she did pick it up, and um, uh, actually listened to some of the critics on the night. I think it was just because she looked good. Any other guys catch these movies? Any comments on it? Yeah, I've seen the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and um, Taraji P Henson um, played Queenie, the woman who acts as a nursemaid to Benjamin Button. Um, he's a man who's aging backwards and he's been born with the body of an old man um, I remember she was very good and they're all very believable and uh, yeah at the end of the day she she's the only one I've seen so I guess she would probably be the one I would have voted for So um, the, there's lots of categories uh, which I think we'll, we'll just quickly uh, skim over because they're not of that much interest but um, original screenplay went to Milk 
Um, any of you guys actually seen this yet? No. 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 And nor do I have any intention of seeing it either. It, it just doesn't appeal to me in the least, I'm afraid. Sad to see that uh, the likes of Wally didn't pick it up there, but I, again, I'm not entirely surprised by that. Obviously, they were going to go typically with um, a, a political and emotional and uh, gritty sort of thing, which is what they did do. Yeah, well, I guess it's it's highly po- political, especially in California at the moment with, with the way that the uh, legislation's going there, very anti-gay legislation. So um, maybe that's Hollywood's chance just to stick the finger up at, at, at those that are voting against back. them. Yeah. Um, adapted screenplay went to Slumdog Millionaire, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm really looking forward to. Any of you got other guys catch that? Yeah, yeah, I would say it's um, it's well uh, well worth uh, winning it, uh, that screenplay because the way the film um, works, uh, it cuts backwards and forwards between the young lad played by Dev Patel who's being interrogated and questioned by the police. Uh, I mean, how dare he win the competition? And um, each time he mentions something that, that he was able to draw upon um, that helped him to win it takes you to a flashback situation um, from his childhood, uh, from his past where he's learnt uh, by experience uh, the, the kind of thing that's been useful to him to help him win the competition. Very very well crafted. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to getting to see that. Um, it'll have to wait till Blu-ray now. Um, let's move on to animated feature, and this is one that I take, uh, always take interest in because I love my animated films. I don't know about you guys, but um, nominations were Disney's Bolt, Kung Fu Panda from DreamWorks, and Wally from uh, Pixar. And obviously, the winner was Wally. But um, I've got to say, it was very, very close between Kung Fu Panda and Wally, Chris, um, in in yeah. terms of, of of the actual animation side of things. Uh, the best animated films of last year, without any shadow of a doubt. Wally um, is just special on almost every level. Kung Fu Panda is a different kettle of fish altogether. It's more conventional. Uh, it's clever. It's inspired. The animation's sublime. But um, Wally, I'm quite happy that Wally won that one. I'm not surprised it won it as well. That's that's a very deserving case, I think. There, uh, Bolt, I can't comment on. I'm afraid because I haven't seen it yet. Um, but although my kids do have all the toys for some unknown reason. Um, but yeah, I'm happy with Wally on that one. I've got to say, I absolutely adore Wally. Um, I loved Kung Fu Panda. I thought it was very well done. I think the soundtrack is absolutely reference quality. I thought the animation was very good. But then you move on to Wally, and it and it, and it just seems to go up a level. I mean, the sound mix is just so sublime. Uh, ben Burt did the sound mix for that, and I just think it's absolutely brilliant what I've done, because there's no dialogue in there, so... Mm. They had a lot and of yet, work and yet to the do. The story is still captivating. It's still moving. It's still it's still telling a story. Kung Fu Panda tells a story as well, but it's a far more conventional one. You've seen that you've seen that before um, a million times. Doesn't make it any less effective because it's still a fantastic film. But Wally does just it, as you say, it goes the extra mile and pushes the boat out a little bit further. And it's different. It's quirky. It's different. It's quite somber, but it's also very uplifting. It's just you know to me the clear winner. Yeah, I think if uh, animated objects make your heart flutter, I think they're doing the right thing, and and it's certainly quite a touching, uh, quite a touching ending to that as well. Um, and I'm glad they didn't do the the take the easy way out as well, which you know they could could have quite easily done, but we won't spoil it for people that haven't seen it yet. So let's move on. 
Um, we've got Simon for Art Direction. Simon, um, tell us the nominees and who won. For Art Direction was, uh, was The Changeling, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Dark Knight, The Duchess and Revolutionary Road. Um, unfortunately, I haven't seen the winner, which was uh, Benjamin Bunn. Perhaps Alan can talk about that. But it's such a shame that The Dark Knight didn't win on that one, particularly because it was a spectacular-looking film. But I can't comment because I haven't seen Benjamin Bunn, so I don't. I couldn't compare and contrast the two. Yeah. Alan, have, well, you, have you seen them both? Could you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Benjamin Button, I think, uh, is very good at, at, at the art direction. Had to cover a very large or long period uh, from the time Ben. Benjamin Button uh, was was born until he he, he dies at the. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't give away the ending. Um, <laughs> I think you could probably guess it anyway. But um, it, 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 to me, it, it was lovely, um, uh, very good. The Dark Knight, I thought. I have to be honest. They 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 tried very much to make Batman work in almost everyday surroundings, which for me didn't work. But on an art direction front, for the guy who had to design it, um, I think he did a very good job there. Um, I, w- I have to say I- I'm more warm towards Ben Button, which actually won it. See, art direction's going to be the uh, in the province of the period drama, isn't it? Yep. Um, and obviously the things like The Duchess and The Changeling, uh, which I actually have seen the changing, apart from the Dark Knight and Wally, probably the only films I've seen in the entire lineup. And the changing is a fantastic film, uh, again Clint Eastwood, and it, it captures the period, you know, quite marvelously. It's not something that particularly leaps out at you anyway, but because um, it's kind of you've seen that era before painted quite well, so it's not something that you, you pay a lot of attention to. Um, I can't comment on Benjamin Button, I'm afraid. It's something I'm going to have to see. I'm going to have to make the effort and see this now. Mm. Um, but once again, Dark Knight, what happened? What happened? <laughs> but, I mean, we'll move on to costume design. That went to the Duchess, uh, just moving the conversation on from art direction, uh, which kind of makes sense. I suppose uh, period drama is very difficult yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, you don't have any points of real reference to go with, so... Uh, what about the back costume? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think things like the Duchess are a real costume designer's dream. I, I remember being uh, doing a, a bit of work for the BBC up at Pebble Mill and the little costume uh, costume designer, uh, experienced costume designer who was working on the little film I was doing, um, her eyes lit up because they were going to be doing Vanity Fair and she was getting really excited about that. You know, you could tell that they really got behind that kind of thing. So something with the, the lovely gowns that the the Duchess yeah, used uh, would be something that a designer could get their teeth into. And of course, that uh, makeup went to Ben Button. Um, Dark Knight and Hellboy Two were in that category. Hellboy Two, some cracking costumes, uh, some makeup yeah. and, and and effects in there. But I guess I making see a... my Dark Knight didn't scoop it there. But I, I can, again can't comment on Ben Button. But Hellboy Two, you know, it's it's wall to wall makeup. Mm. <laughs> Not, we're not even talking, you know, particularly special effects makeup here. It's just just the makeup itself. Everyone is completely lacquered up to the hilt, and you know it's all part of the, you know, uh, character visual ensemble, and it's just wall to wall eye candy. Yeah, well, Benjamin Button relied heavily on makeup to make it uh, believable, because um, he's born as an old man and he gets younger and younger, um, and. In a movie like that, if there was one moment where the makeup didn't work, the whole thing would be out the window. Um, so I watched that, and not for one minute did I think 
I didn't actually think that's good makeup, and I think the fact that you don't think that means it's good. Yeah, I, I, no, I agree you with that. Yeah, very yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally agree with that. So we move on. Uh, I can't agree, which I, you know, I'm a very uh, big fan of cinematography, and a uh, lot of good films in there. Slumdog won it, and although I haven't seen Slumdog, I do like Danny Boyle's style from his previous movies. So I can see why that was the winner. Maybe Alan, you can fill us in on this. Uh, yeah, Slumdog, the uh, camera work on that, um, they, they managed to um, maintain the quality of light that you get in India. And also they managed to uh, use a fairly, what I would call a fairly new style of um, camera work that, that, that I guess almost appeals to the MTV generation. Um, uh, you know, n- not everything's locked on a tripod and um, squared up and you know, uh, done in the old-fashioned style. It's all cut, generally quite fast-moving, so you need to have a style of photography that works with that. Um, Ben Button, by comparison, uh, is a more conventional style of filming. It's uh, somebody who knows how to tell a story well in the old-fashioned sense of the word. Uh, The camera's locked on a tripod, it's on cranes. Uh, It's more conventional in its style and of its use of lighting. Um... Each one, you know, I could see had its own merits. To be honest, if it was me, I would have given the prize to Benjamin Button. <laughs> uh, but although I did like uh, Slumdog Millionaire, uh, when when you see it, you you might understand what I mean. Um, it, it's uh, Slumdog is more what I would call a brash style of cinematography, whereas um, uh, uh, Benjamin Button is more beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the reason I say that about Boyle, I mean, you just have to look at the beach, uh, train spot, and other movies he's done. It, that style seems to go through. It's almost like a guerrilla style filmmaking that yep. he goes for. Yeah, totally. Dark Knight. We've already mentioned that, Chris. Chris Nolan just can't film action fight no. scenes. No, he's he's very inept at it. It's almost like he's choosing not to, um, because how you can actually have fight sequences. And not show what's taking place is, is beyond me. The whole point of the fight is to see what's taking place. And he just doesn't want to do it. It's horribly sloppy and cuts away far too often. Um, so, I mean, cinematography, again, for The Dark Knight. Elsewhere, I mean, of course, this was a big IMAX movie, wasn't it? You've got some tremendously vivid you know, visual shots there, which just drag you in. And... But, you know, I've not seen any other movies apart from Changeling, and I can't remember too well how that looked. It wasn't particularly striking, but, again, it's Clint Eastwood, so it's going to be very, very sedate and elegant. He just puts the camera down. I mean, I don't know what technical term is, but he puts the camera there, and it's cast before in front of it. There's no particular tricks taking place there. Very, very traditional, very elegant, as I say. And if Benjamin Button was the same sort of thing, you know, as I can imagine it probably would be... um, you know, Dark Knight is probably a lot messier compared to those. The reader can't comment. Slumdog, as you say, uh, Danny Boyle's got a particular style there. So it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly surprised that that one picked it up. Short film went to Spielberg Land. I hope I've got the pronunciation right there, Toyland. Um, it's always a category for form f- that foreign film does really well in. It's the short, short film live action. Um, is this the type of category where you, you lads will, will actually go and make an effort to watch these types of films? No. Not particularly. I mean, in the old days, the short film was always shown before the main feature, and there was a market for it, and it got uh, the E.D. Levy that was taken from the um, the cut of the uh, 
the um, main feature that it went out with, so there was money towards it, but it gave a greater exposure to short films. Nowadays, when we go to the cinema, we're straight into the feature once we've seen the adverts and the, and the trailers. Um, and obviously, the use of the short film, the main function was it for it was to get people's u- eyes used to the light. And uh, it, it was a 20-minute film, but now they don't do that, so we're now not getting as exposed to them as we used to, which is a real shame because there were some real gems out there. Yeah, I've got to say, uh, complete ignorance to short films here. I will admit it. I really should do better. Should and go I, on to and some of course, some perhaps up-and-coming filmmakers you know, who, who could be the next big thing, and they're cutting their teeth on this kind of material, and you know, we're not making the effort to go and find, find out what's going on. And and I guess the other side of the coin is where do you get to see these movies nowadays apart from an art house cinema? The internet, basically. So do you think this this might be a big category then in, in the future for uh, new filmmakers on the internet? I mean, you look at the equipment that you can buy nowadays. I mean, you can pick up a, a 4K camera um, for not a lot of money these days um, and go out and shoot your own feature. Do you think that the internet's going to... Um, push this this type of genre of filmmaking? It may well do. Um, uh, if you look, um, uh, sometimes I receive emails from people saying, hi, my new feature film or my new short film is going to be premiered on the internet at 8 o'clock on Sunday night. Um, feel free to join in. So you can get, get yourself an audience, an immediate audience. It's how you make money out of it, I don't know, but because uh, <laughs> that's what it all boils down to at the end of the day. You need to somehow cover the cost of the production. Um, so uh, t- certainly you get an exposure, but as for a mass market that gives you decent revenue, I don't know. And I guess the other thing is, will that affect the academy? You know, is, is that the type of thing they're looking at or are, are they looking for the, the art film there? Hmm. Hard to know, hard to know how they judge it. Um, I, I, I just used to think, you know, when I saw short films, I, I would think I'm looking for something that's either a bit new, a bit different, a bit experimental. But generally what you find is you see an experimental film and somebody goes and pinches the idea and uses it on a commercial project. Mm. Yes, those naughty people. Hey, so moving on, the beast. moving mm. on swiftly, uh, another two successes for Britain. We did very, very well this year. Um in the documentary shot, of Smile Pinky, which was a, a British production crew, and Man on Wire for documentary feature, which was about some mad Frenchman, but it was a British, uh, a British film. Um, so well done to them. Unfortunately, I haven't seen them, but Man on Wire is on Sky at some point. So if uh, people want to catch that, it is going to come up on Sky very soon. And then I guess we move on to the. <laughs> I guess the most controversial award of the night, and it's one that the critics certainly were talking about for hours and hours afterwards, and that's actor in a supporting role. Uh, Josh Broslin, Robert Downer Jr., Philip Seymour Hoffman, Heath Ledger and Michael Shannon. And uh, Heath Ledger won it for, for The Dark Knight. Now, a lot of people out there are saying that if Heath was still with us, and we, we all wish he was, um, he might not have won that. Where are we going with this? Do you, do you think that that's maybe right, or do you think his performance deserved the the award? Well, his performance certainly was enough to warrant him getting into the category anyway. Uh, I, my again, I can't comment on on most of the other ones because I've not seen the, those performances. But I certainly had Heath Ledger down because the performance was electric. It was frightening. It was amusing. It was deeply sincere. It was a 
complete departure from anything he'd ever done before. Uh, you could see an evolution to his own performing talents. And it was just all round impressive. He was mesmerizing. Now, that's the kind of performance that, that should win awards because it holds you riveted. Uh, and it, it's everything at once upsetting, dark, insanely funny. It's, it's just terrific. Uh, sadly, I can't comment on the other ones, as I say, but I made up that he did get it. Now, did his dying obviously help promote him to win this? Almost certainly it did, yeah. I mean, I'm still saying that he would have been in the category, but it's given the extra little nudge, hasn't it? It certainly got the uh, the sympathy vote um, from from some you know, quarters of the academy. Uh, but I'm happy that he got it. I'm very happy that he got it. Uh, but, but then again, that... there was a lot of talk before the movie even came out saying this guy is phenomenal. So um, I guess that, that kind of says as well that, that there was a lot of hype before the tragedy even happened. So maybe he yeah. does deserve it. Yeah. The uh, Robert Downey Jr., I, I saw him, uh, I saw Tropic Thunder... And he plays. Uh, he's actually obviously obviously a white man playing a black actor, and he was totally credible in that role. Um, I, I would have believed if I didn't know who he was, I would have believed he was a, a black actor. And obviously, it was a, the Tropic Thunder was a send up of the sort of uh, uh, Apocalypse Now type films. And um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character was very good, very funny, very believable. And to me, he stole that movie. Um, he was the best thing about it. I thought. Michael Shannon in Revolutionary Road, uh, he played um, a, a guy with um, mental problems who's dragged along by his parents to visit the, the couple who are the, at the centre of the story. Uh, Revolutionary Road, I found it a pretty depressing film, but um, this young man was very credible in his, in his, his uh, role play, playing the, uh, the the guy with mental problems. Uh, I, I, I've known a few people who have had similar problems and it's almost like I was looking at them yeah I, I guess it goes without saying that everybody gets nominated is obviously there for a reason and, and you know they, they are at the top of their game um, let's just take a vote on this I'm quite happy that Heath Ledger got this I, I take it you guys are the same or is there any differing opinions no, no I'd, I'd, go, I'd go with that yeah yeah I would Okay, so, so uh, he inhabited that character. He became that character. It's a notoriously difficult one to play. I mean, Jack Nicholson, when he did it, he was Jack Nicholson playing the Joker. Um, although it's, it's unfair to make comparisons, but it's the same character that they're playing. But Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson became... Well, the, the Joker, he made the Joker become himself. That's, that's what he did. Heath Ledger completely transformed himself, left his own persona behind, and he became the Joker. And I mm. was totally, you know... I was with him for that ride, which is horrific, but it's uh, but it's true. He totally, utterly um, swayed me. Okay, so we're going to move quickly through the rest of the categories here uh, because we have spoken about these uh, films in quite some detail now. Uh, ben Button won visual effects, which we all know now. Uh, old man at the start, young man at the end. Um, so Dark Knight was also very good. Iron Man also very good, but Ben Button picked up the award for that. Sound editing went to the Dark Knight. Yay, Chris. Hey. One. Uh, he also had Iron <laughs> yeah, Man, right. Slumdog Millionaire, Wally, and Wanted in there. Quite, I'm quite sad that Ben Burt didn't pick that up. I, I thought, you know, animation has to be the hardest uh, genre to, to do sound. 
um, because there isn't any sound on, on set. So mm. uh, quite sad that he didn't pick that up. But Dark Knight, yeah, very good. Uh, sound mixing went to Slumdog Millionaire. Again, Wally in the Dark Knight missed out there, as did Ben Button. And uh, Wanted, haven't seen it, don't really want to. Um, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Uh, film editing again went to Slumdog Millionaire and you're starting to get the, the, the feeling now that Slumdog was going to do well on the evening when it was picking all these awards up uh, again we went on to um, Music Score which went to Slumdog Millionaire the song went to Slumdog Millionaire um, Foreign Language Film went to Departures and then moving up we get to the main categories uh, Actress in a Leading Role and uh, Kate Winslet yay Britain wins again mm-hmm. uh, for the reader haven't seen that don't know if it's my type of film, but um, now it's won the award, I might actually give it a chance. Do you think that, that this is what the Oscars do for certain films? Yeah, oh, it certainly yeah, does. Yeah, without a doubt, yeah. yeah. Uh, films that you, you really didn't have much of an interest in before, uh, all of a sudden they're getting all these accolades. You want to see what the fuss is about. That, that makes a lot of sense. I've seen a lot of interviews with uh, Kate Winslet regarding this, even before yeah, the Oscars. And uh, Although it was a film I'd never heard of until I started to see her being interviewed about it. Um, but I think the most... It shows how shallow I am. The most interesting thing about this for me is the fact that apparently she's nude for an entire, you know, a lot of the movie. So I yeah. really want to go and see it for that reason alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's the last one. sounds good to me. It's, yeah. a, it's her last one that she's going to be nude in, so that's another reason to go and see it. There you go. <laughs> oh, only Simon <laughs> would know that bit of information. Uh, moving on, actor in a leading role went to Sean Penn. Um, I've got to say, looking at the others yet, I wish Mickey Rock had gotten that. Um, yeah. I, do. I haven't seen the yeah. film, but just on the, just on hype and just the fact that he's back and, and and doing things again, it's it's a shame it went to Sean Penn. I mean, obviously his role, I haven't seen the film, but going by uh, the stuff that I have read, he obviously deserved that. But you've got to think that there is a political message behind um, him getting that. I mean, also you've got uh, Frost and Nixon. I mean, uh, Frank Langella um, from the clips I've seen from that film, he is Nixon. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> you know, you look at him and, and and you look at Nixon, and it's very very difficult to tell tell the difference. So, well, I'm surprised that Michael Sheen didn't get in there actually for um, his depiction of Frost. I mean, this is a guy who's big, he's managing to flip between many many real life characters. I mean, he's got a few more lined up, hasn't he? I mean, and these two have both done it on stage as well. So I'm surprised, and they're, they're excellent. I'm surprised he hasn't he wasn't in there as well in the running for that one. But. Sean Penn, as you say, there could well be a political thing behind that. Mickey Rourke, it's a shame because, uh, again, although I haven't seen it, but I know people who have, and you know, the, he reduced them to tears, people who wouldn't normally have uh, either extolled his virtues or even cried in a movie, and yet they've come away singing his praises. You know, So, I don't know. And then we move on to the last two, which are the big two, director and uh, film of the year. And it always surprises me when you get one one award for director for one film and then film of the year for another. It just doesn't quite make sense. So it was quite, um, well, quite euphoric. Britain, again, scooping their slumdog millionaire in both categories. So um, uh, it, quite good to see Mr Boyle down to earth. Uh, I saw him on the news today. He was in a workingman's club celebrating. It just shows you how down to earth the guy is. And uh, well done to him for, for scooping that. I really have to see this film now. What about you guys that haven't seen it? It's, does it make you want to go and see it now? I'm beginning to feel obliged to see it. It was a film I wasn't particularly interested in. Um, the, the, the subject matter didn't really affect me. Uh, I wasn't dismissing the film, but it's one that if it came on, you know, I got it on disc or came on TV, yeah, I'd probably sit and really be enthralled by it. 
but it's not one that I go to flicks to go and see particularly. Mm. It's not just not my subject matter. Um, but yeah, without a doubt, it kind of promotes the fact that there's something for a hell of a lot of worth in this movie. So we should go and make the effort to see it. I think you'll find it's time well spent. Um, I, I saw it and um, I wouldn't say that many films are well crafted, but this one impressed me. And yeah. um, it's very well written, very well edited. And, um, you know, the, the environment of the game show um, is very believable. And um, I remember just the other day seeing Chris Tarrant on the television saying that uh, he had never actually gone to the toilet with a contestant and written an answer on the mirror. But um, <laughs> he, he was certainly with uh, with the, the, the young lad and hoped that he, he won the competition. And it's very it's a very good feel good movie and to use a, a corny term but I, I was going to um, ask you about that because the advertising campaign did tout it as the uh, the feel good movie of I think the decade I think they said and yet yeah. everything I've heard about the movie is that it's exceptionally grim in places and very sort of serious and deeply emotionally affecting not mm. the kind of thing you always hear with the you know inverted commas feel good type of movie. Yeah, I think they said that because it's the thing that puts bums on seats, and also it's the fact that um, when you see it, um, I think you'll you, you'll feel like well, I, th- I can't really speak for you, but um, I certainly felt. You and felt like I, punching the air in euphoria. Yeah, yeah, because you, you all you. I mean, I, I I always support the underdog somebody who's had a, a rough deal in life and they, these young lads who, who live in the, the slums in India um, they're in very poor conditions um, it was a great kick for me to see the, the wee boys who appeared in this film uh, on the red carpet at the Oscar ceremony and they were all really excited and chuffed to bits because they've got Daniel Craig's autograph You know, the big argument now is okay they've got to go back to these slums but I think they've, they've set up a trust fund for them uh, but it's to me it was a cracking movie and uh, how they decided between that and Ben Button uh, I don't know um, Ben Button to me is it's a very sad tale and I have to say I, I did shed a tear at the end of it almost uncontrollable um, but and then you know it's it's a story um, and all of these are just movies but something that can um, evoke that kind of emotion in us as human beings that is what makes us different from machines. Um, yeah, see, ben, ben Button, on the face of it, is the kind of thing I would have expected to see uh, in the, the category for Best Picture mm. and possibly scooping the, uh, the award itself. That's exactly um, what that, I That just seems the, the quintessential Oscar-winning movie, uh, very deeply affecting, emotional. Uh, it tells a, an epic story. Um, you know, it, It's just the, the typical kind of thing the Academy would go for. Something else which I think we should mention is the fact that isn't it weird that all these movies only just came out? Yeah, they're mm. all they're all back end of last year and started oh, this year movies. Well, it, uh, there's a whole year to um, to go through, isn't there? But, yeah, but they all time it, you know. Yeah, they all time it for that. You know, I, I must admit, I, I was surprised and happy that Slumdog won it because I thought. I honestly thought the Americans were going to, um, as they were on home turf, give it to Benjamin Button. Um, uh, you know, but uh, to see Danny Boyle's film winning, uh, I was delighted about that. You know, but also I, I realised what a good film Benjamin Button was. Uh, so it's about three, it's over three hours long. Uh, Slumdog's about 100 and odd minutes or something. But 
how do you compare the two? You know, I would hate to have that job. Well, I'm with you. I thought it was going to go to Ben Button um, mm. just because it had that sort of Forrest Gump feel to it. You just thought, well, the Academy's going to go for that. You know, yeah. you're moving through the decades and so on. They like that kind of thing. So I was more than surprised when, when Slumdog won that. And like you say, I mean, how how did the, the voting go? It'd be interesting to see just how close that was. So it looks like um, Colin Wellen's lines from a long, long time ago, the British are coming, finally are coming true. Uh, slowly. <laughs> well, well, this is one point I wanted to pick up on and, and obviously come to Alan with, with his experience um, with British film. Um, I mean, Slumdog won eight Oscars in total, which is a huge haul for a British film. Um, I think The English Patient is the only one which is kind of up there with the same same sort of numbers. Plus we had Kate Winslet winning Best Actress, and uh, we had a lot of success with documentary films uh, as well. So is it a case that British films now been recognised? And what what can we expect from Britain now that we have scooped all these awards? What do you think, Alan? Well, I think what we could hope for, uh, rather than expect, would be that people would be willing to invest in the finance of British films in Britain rather than with American money. Um, the fact is we're in the middle of a recession, um, so it's going to have to take something with massive tax breaks to um, cause people to do this. Uh, you know, in Britain, if a film gets made, it's the fact that it gets made is a bloody miracle. I'm sorry, am I allowed to say that? Um, um, it, it just, no, you know, almost they should almost get a, an award for just being able to make the film because there are so many things working against them. Uh, it's the same with a lot of other uh, other countries, but in America they've actually still got a studio system of kinds where you could go with a, an idea and get the backing. In this country, you can't. If you're touting a film around, I tried I tried touting a film around years ago uh, about Jeff Hawk, who was a cartoon character. It was going to be a live action picture, and we took it around all the British contacts, and. You know, they they just weren't interested. It was a good story as well. Um, Disney, at the end of the day, said, uh, well, we've got something like this in production at the moment. Um, Strangely, The Winds of Mars turned out to be very similar. Um, But, you know, getting a film made in Britain is is a real hardship. Um, You've got film development funds that will maybe give you 10, 20 grand to help you develop a script. And then at another stage, you've got to get the production money. And if you look at the credits on all the British films, they're co-productions with about three or four different financiers. You know, it's how does the producer juggle that? They've got to be a genius to give everybody what they want. You know, if they all want to have their own say about how the film looks, I pity the director, you know. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of these um, companies now being set up, though. And that was the thing when Slumdog won. He was thanking the the studios. And you suddenly realise how many were behind the project and financing the project. There was film for um, the the ones I can remember, Fox, Searchlight, um, there was another British one who I can't remember at the moment, but there, there seemed to be about five or six studios that were uh, putting the money up for the film to be made. So um, your point there certainly rings true about getting the finance to get get the films made. Um, is are we going to see the internet helping in this this regard? Um, in as much as I would, I think 
uh, for exposure of a film, possibly as a way of distributing the film, maybe, uh, or clips of the film to get people interested in it. But as a way of making money out of the film to pay for its production, I don't know how you do that. I don't. I don't know how. Uh, I don't know how um, the internet is going to give you a way of getting people to pay to see the film. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So I, I mean, there still needs to be some kind of business model then for for that to to work. But we have seen films in the past that have used the the internet to get people involved. I'm just thinking about the young filmmakers that are coming through now. And um, I watched a. Uh, it was actually an online documentary about the the whole thing about young filmmakers coming through and the fact that that with the attention spans of people nowadays that they actually think that um, the, the cinema may suffer in the future because the, these younger filmmakers that are coming through, you, you're talking like 17, 18, 19 year old at the moment, but they're not making um, films for, for uh, what would be traditional cinema audiences. So do, do you see things changing in the future because of that? Um, well, yeah, um, I have to agree there about the attention span um, getting less and less, and that's because of television. Television presents things in bite-sized chunks because it realises the general younger audience's attention span is getting less and less, and that links to computers and computer games. Uh, unless you can press a button and get immediate gratification, you're not happy with it. Um, so a long film uh, that takes its time to tell the story well is going to be something that the younger generation aren't going to think about making unless you get a very unique director or someone who has the patience and is different from his peers who can recognise a good story and know how to tell it well but I would say to you how does somebody know how to tell a story if nobody's taking the time to tell them one in the past so I think uh, we'll end on that point, I think it's a good point to end on, um, so Oscars this year, um, I guess the things that, that that we can pick up is that Britain did very well, we seem to do well in, in sort of 10 year cycles so maybe this was our, our peak and we won't see the likes again for a while but hopefully uh, that's not the case and we, we go on from here and uh, see some of, the, some of the great British work being, being uh, awarded um, another thing I picked up, guys, I don't know if you picked it up as well, a lot of blockbusters in there this year um, that, and yeah. types of genres that the Academy in the past would maybe have sidestepped. Did anybody else notice that? Certainly with the makeup one. Yeah, I mean, Dark Knight mm. is, is in there loads, isn't it? Wanted, Iron Man. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah it's, it's, it's good to see them in there, mm. you know, not being glossed over as, as, as they have been in the past, you know, ignored for being a... Uh, a blockbuster yeah. or, or or a kids film or, or whatever. Maybe the door has now opened for um, mm. other genres to creep in. Other than the uh, notably uh, inverted commas again, where the type of movies, the yeah. Elegiac movies. Yeah. yeah. So maybe maybe t- times are moving on. Maybe the Academy is is starting to realise that uh, that's the way that the movie industry is these days, and and a lot of it is about getting bums on seats rather than. Maybe telling a, a, an intellectual story that takes four hours on screen to tell. Anyway, that wraps up um, our little chat about the Oscars. Let us know what you think out there. Uh, you can uh, give us your feedback in the thread in the podcast forum. Let us know what you think. And uh, hopefully we will be back again in April with another podcast. So all that leaves me to do is to thank Alan. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks to Simon. Thanks for listening. And, of course, thanks to Chris McAnini. Thank you, Chris. And thank you all. And this has been Phil Hinden. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you again in April. Mm-hmm.
The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.